thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. continue our study in the book of Genesis, and we are now in chapter 36. Chapter 36 is a closure chapter. It is a chapter that completes the cycle of Jacob before we start the last cycle in Genesis, which is that of Joseph. And because it's a closer, closer chapter, it recapitulates uh, genealogy. Remember, Genesis, as we said from the very beginning, is also the book of, the, as they say, the book of Telodot which is the book of genealogies. And there are ten genealogies listed in this book that speak of different, um, um, that recapitulate the history of different people. And it's done on purpose because it's very important to remember who you come from, especially later on among the Jews when you want to keep track of the genealogy of the king. Uh, That becomes very important. And so this chapter is a difficult chapter for all of us We're going to see how well we do through it. Not an easy chapter to read. And um, we'll we'll try to um, understand its meaning and purpose as best as we can. So if you have scripture with you, please read with me, uh, beginning with the first verse of chapter 36. These are the descendants of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Oholibama, the daughter of Anna, the son of Zibion, the Hevite, and Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basimath, and Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz. Basimath bore Reuel, Ruel, and Oholibama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. And Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his cattle, all his beasts, and all his property which he had acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their cattle. So Esau dwelt in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the descendants of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. So... From verse 1 through verse 8, we have the first genealogy of Esau. And then starting with verse 9, we're going to repeat it. It is given again. These are the descendants of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Ruel, the son of Basimath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. 
Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Misa. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Oholibamah, the daughter of Anna, the son of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. And now we'll repeat it again. What we just heard is again repeated under the heading of chiefs. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son, the chiefs Naha, Zerah, Shammah, and Misa. These are the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Oholibamah, Esau's wife, the chiefs Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Oholibamah, the daughter of Anna, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. Uh, So therefore, until um, verse 19, we've heard the genealogy of Esau repeated three times. You're going to have to wonder what's going on here. Now, there is a complete switch. We're going to go to Seir. And the reason we go to Seir is, as it said earlier, Edom is going to move all his belongings into the land of Seir. So if you can picture Israel at the very bottom, sort of south-east, the corner, you have a series of mountains that start there. That is the land of Seir. So it's closer to Egypt, if you will. Right? That's where he's going to move. Well, before he got there, there were people living there. And who are they? Well, this is who they are. And the reason why they're listed here is because uh, for, for purposes to understand what happens to them after the conquest. Right? These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the son of Seir, in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Heman, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. She's listed here because she's the same Timna that bore uh, Abimel, um, that bore um, Amalek to Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the son of Esau. And there's a reason why this is listed here. We'll get back to it in a minute. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Aya and Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the asses of Zibion, his father. What do we call these moments when we read something like this? What is that? That's a thunderclap moment, right? You're reading quietly a book and you hear a thunderclap. What, do you, what happens to you? You jump. You're supposed to jump when you hear this. Okay. Again, it's the same thing where you're hearing somebody talking to you about the theory of relativity and explaining it to you in full gooey detail. In the middle of it, he stops and he says, and now let me tell you how you make lemonade. This is what happened here. Listen, listen again. These are the sons of Shobal. I'm reading verse 23. Alvan, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. So far, so good. These are the sons of Zibion. Aina and Anna. So far, so good. Suddenly, he is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the asses of Zibion, his father. What hot springs? And why are we mentioning this here? There's no other mention made of anybody else doing anything but him. 
Yeah? So it should immediately attract your attention. What's going on here? Why is it mentioned? There's a reason for that. Verse 25. These are the children of Anna, Dishon and Oholibama, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Shiran. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Akan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites according to their clan in the land of Seir. So up to verse 30, we have all the sons of Seir and their grandsons, and then recapitulating the chiefs, the one who had political, uh, um, a political position of importance. Then verse 31, there is a listing, an unrelated listing of kings that came from Edom. It's not related to anything we read so far. It's just listed here. And those are kings that span the period from, say, Edom all the way to Saul. So we're talking a period of about 800 years. They're listed here. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king, over, before any king reigned over the Israelites. Therefore, before Saul, because Saul is the first king, right? Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhaba. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah, of Bozrah, reigned in his stead. Joab died, and Husham, of the land of the Timonites, reigned in his stead. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his stead, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samla of Masrika reigned in his stead. Samla died, and Shoal of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his stead. Anybody going tilt? Where's the Euphrates? It's like I'm saying to you, um, you know, Reagan was president of the United States, and then after Reagan, Carter came, and after Carter, Bush came, and then so-and-so was president of Mexico. Euphrates, we're way down there, I told you, in the bottom, southeast of Israel. Where's the Euphrates? Hundreds of miles away. Okay. Shoal died and Balhanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his stead. Balhanan, the son of Akbor, died and Hadar reigned in his stead. The name of his city being Po. Nothing to do with Italy, by the way. Very interesting because the sound Pe is not usually found that easily in this region. Right? Po. His wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezahab. Usually wives are never mentioned. Not only is she mentioned, her mother is mentioned, her grandmother is mentioned. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their families and their dwelling places by their names, the chiefs Timna, Alva, Jeveth, Jethe, Oholibama, Ela, Pinon, Kenas, Teman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom. We'll go back now to repeating again the genealogy of Edom. That is Esau, the father of Edom, according to the dwelling places in the land of their possession. So, obviously, not the most exciting chapter of the Bible by any means. And I could have very well skipped it altogether. Because presumably, what most of us would do, if we were to read Genesis, we get to this chapter, and then what do we do? 
keep on moving. But there are a number of um, important points we can make, even though um, we're not going to be fully able to understand the point of the chapter. But there are some important points we can make. The first one, the most obvious one, which I think I may have said before, um, do not do not suggest to someone, to anyone, to simply start read the Bible. Don't do that. Okay? The Bible is a very difficult book. This chapter is difficult, but at least it does not shock. We may not completely understand why they have the need to list all these you know, all these names and scripture, why is the Holy Spirit inspiring anybody to list those names here? But we're not overly shocked by it. We may be bored, right? There are other chapters, though. There are other events in scripture which are very shocking. Very shocking. And therefore, it is not prudent to recommend to somebody, oh, you know, just start reading the Bible. It's, it's a difficult topic. So what should you, what should you do then? Should you say, don't read scripture? Well, no, obviously not. This flies against in the face of all the teachings of the church. But you, you simply have to recommend for them something more specific. So, if someone has not yet started reading scripture and does not fully understand, you know, doesn't have a good compass, not fully understand, who, who fully understands scripture, doesn't have a good compass of scripture, does not understand it in its context, its purpose, etc., one recommendation might be, why don't you pick up the Gospel of St. Luke? Very beautiful Gospel. Well written. Has its own challenges and difficulties. I'll grant you that. But, if you re- read the, the Gospel of St. Luke, there are already a number of things you can profit from within the Gospel. Math, the Gospel of St. Matthew would, be, would also come to mind. But I typically prefer to start with St. Luke because he... He has a number of um, stories which we know and we like, like, for instance, the uh, parable of the, uh, um, um, you know, the, the parable of the good father or, or the wayward uh, child, the, the one who left prodigal son, yes, right? And furthermore, you might say, pick up the Navarre Bible on St. Luke. So it's one book. You can get it on Amazon or any of your Catholic favorite Catholic bookstores called the Navarre Bible series, done by the University of Navarre in Spain. And the reason why I recommend it is about, I think it's about $10 or $12, something like that. You get five lines of scripture and three-quarter of a page of commentary written on the gospel. Navarre, N-A-V-A-R-R-E. The Navarre Bible. They They have the whole thing on Amazon. Just pick this one little book and then you just read five verses and you read commentary and you profit You profit quite a bit from it. That's a much better way of <coughs> recommending to someone to read scripture instead of saying just pick up the, the Bible. For instance, the Bible I use for the, uh, for the study, the New Catholic Revised, uh, the New Catholic, the New Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. Right? This is the one I use. There are no commentaries in it. None. It is made, I would say, more or less for study. When you do a study, this is a really good book. In fact, the Navarre Bible is based off of it as well. Right? But it's not one that you read with commentary. You need something that has good commentary. It goes with it. And you need something that is kind of easier to get in than some of these ancient texts. All right? 
Somebody had a question? Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. So there is also the Navarre Bible. What happens is that the Navarre Bible is a condensed version of the separate books. So there are fewer commentaries in it. But it's, it is also um, put out by the, the, the University of Navarre in Spain. But essentially they condense the commentary to make it possible to have one book. Right? That could be also an option. I like personally to have the separate books because, number one, it's easier. Number two, you can share them in your families. You can be reading different books. And it's, uh, it is a pretty good commentary on, uh, on Scripture. The only, uh, the only um, I would say so far, the, the one book where I differ from the Navarre Bible is the book of, uh, of, uh, it's the, the, the book of Revelation. Um, they have really good commentary, but uh, on that particular book, I think that um, uh, there are certain points where they could have been addressed a little bit better. That's my take on it. But overall, it's a wonderful, wonderful um, edition of Scripture to read. Okay. Now, overall, why is that book put here? Well, there, there is a reason. Edom, Edom, Esau becomes Edom, right? Edom plays a very important role in the history of Israel. There were some promises made or some prophecies made when Jacob and Esau were born. Esau came first. Jacob came, came second. If you remember, their mother, Rebekah, went and asked of the, the, the two babies in her womb who were struggling. And she was told, the second will rule over the first. And when Jacob received the blessing of his father being disguised as Esau, and Esau came back second, Isaac told Esau, he will rule over you. You shall serve him. So what is important here to note is that they are indicating that indeed Esau was, but, but, but he was also told, you will prosper. Esau was told, you will prosper. So let me see if I, I think I've quoted these verses here. He was, uh, Isaac told him, he will prosper, but eventually he will end up serving his, his brother. So in, um, in verses 31 through 39... So first, in Genesis 25, verse 23, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples, born of you, shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the elder shall serve the younger. Then in 27, 39 through 40, Isaac told Esau, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you break loose, you shall break his yoke from your, from your neck. And what is going on right now is the fulfillment of this prophecy. The fact that he moves southeast of Israel to a more drier land, even though it's higher up, is an indication of the beginning of the fulfillment of this, of this uh, uh, prophecy. And there is also, uh, as I said earlier, an, an important point to make. Later on in Exodus, there, was, there is going to be a prophet whose name is Balaam. And a king opposed to Israel tries to buy Balaam's services. He wants, them, he wants him to curse the Israelites. Right? So this is a king who understands the covenant and blessings and curses. And now he wants that prophet to effectively speak curses on them. And every time Balaam opens up his mouth to speak, he speaks blessings. 
And the king is getting really irate with him. And he says, hey, what can I do? You know, whatever comes out of my mouth is out of my control. I can't control it. That's what it is. And the fourth blessing of, of Balaam is, the, is the, the greatest, in a sense, the greatest prophecy. You come out of this corrupt prophet, but it's a great prophecy, in which he says that a star shall rise from uh, Israel and that Edom shall be dispossessed. So, if you wonder where, where, where is this business of the star of David, that's where it comes from. From the fourth prophecy of Balaam. And perhaps now you understand why Herod, the, the so-called Herod the Great, reacted with such violence when he heard the three magis coming to him and telling him about the, the birth of the child. For, they said, we have seen his star rise in the east. And Herod is an Edomite. He was not a Jew. And he knew of the fourth prophecy of Balaam, of Edom being dispossessed, the rising of the star, and there was no question of anybody dispossessing him of anything. That's why he reacted so violently. That's why he took the threat so seriously, because he knew it had something to do with him being an Edomite. All right? That is why we spend such. We, the scripture is recording these events here about Edom because they have far reaching consequences. The Edomites and the Israelites will be locked in a bitter struggle for years, and then finally they will be subdued by David, who will conquer their area and completely subdue them. So that prophecy is going to come true now. The, the one who's recording scripture, even though we say that most of the book of Genesis, most of the book of uh, the, the most of the Pentateuch, the first five books of Genesis, were um, taught by Moses. So we, we ascribe to Moses the overall authorship of the Pentateuch. However, we cannot say that Moses penned it down. We are. It's uh, it's clear that there is a later author who actually put it down. And here you have a, a good example of this, because the list of the kings that I read to you span a very long period, way after Moses' life. So the book is written for, um, for Jews who are in exile in Babylon. I recall, again, the distinction between an Israelite, a Hebrew, and a Jew. Right? These are written for the Jews, the descendants of Judah in, in Babylon. Not all the Israelites. The, most of the red ten tribes are now untraceable after the conquest of the Assyrians. Because when the Assyrians conquered the kingdom of Israel up north, after the split between the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel, when they did, the, when they did their conquest, what, they typically, what the Assyrians did is that they would come in they would conquer a place, they would take their people and force them to intermarry with other people. They would essentially create a, a forced melting pot. That's how they acted. As a result, it is very difficult to trace back the ten tribes who composed the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of uh, Judah down south consisted of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. So these guys were in Babylon after after uh, 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 Nebuchadnezzar came down and destroyed Jerusalem in 587 BC, 
And it's in exile that these books are actually being penned down. So anyone reading this, even about these genealogies, for them, it must have been also a surprise to read all these names and realize how much of what was prophesied had come true. Hence, it becomes for them a sign of hope that what, has yet, what, what is prophesied and has yet come true will come true one day. So therefore, these genealogies played that role in the history of Israel. They had this, uh, um, this important role to play. Now, for us, what is the one... Uh, the, the, so I said the first lesson is to realize the difficulty in Scripture. The second one is to ask ourselves this question. To what degree are we familiar with our own genealogies? And I don't necessarily mean the natural one. I do mean the supernatural one. You have, you're all baptized. Do you know your patron saint, your own patron saint? You know you have an own, your own patron saint. You know that. He's, he or she is the saint that claimed you at your baptism. So for, uh, for Latin Rite folks, usually it's easy because it tends to be your middle name. Right? Your middle name is the name of your saint. He or she claimed you for Christ. For folks who are of the Eastern uh, tradition, you, need to, you, you usually have a baptismal name. That baptismal name is the name of a saint. Who is that saint? Do you know? So you are folk, you're like people who are now estranged from your own family, if you don't know. You have at least a duty to inform yourself, educate yourself, read their biography, find out who they are, and give them the right devotion that is their due. They claim you as their child in baptism. And you're completely ignoring them. There is one prayer that we say with the children. And so it goes like this. So in my case, my, my, baptismal, my, my baptismal name is Michael. Therefore, um, curiously, there is only one St. Michael I know of. And it's St. Michael the Archangel. I don't know of any other St. Michael. Which is kind of really interesting, isn't it? So the prayer goes like this. St. Michael um, the Archangel, whom, I, whom at my baptism was chosen as my guardian, and under whose patronage I became an adopted child of God, and something about assist me by your powerful intercession and fulfillment of the sacred promises. Right? So something about baptism I'm forgetting in the middle. But when we say the prayer, I, when I'm in the car driving with the kids, because this is a prayer I say every day with my, my uh, morning devotion, St. Michael the Archangel, and then everybody in the family will go and say their own, the saint that, that, that is attached to their baptism. We, you have to have devotion to that saint. At least find out who... He is or who she is. Don't ignore. Right? Likewise, if you come from a specific tradition, so in our case, um, in my case, I'm a Maronite. And this year, our patriarch declared this year to be the year of St. Maron, who is the father of the Maronites. He uh, died 1,600 years ago. So every Sunday, I sit with the family, and I'm teaching them about St. Maron and about the Maronites, who they are, where they come from. Why it's important for them to know the family. And once I'm done with this, I'll go back and tell them about the 33 doctors of the church. Those are important saints to know. Right? What are you doing? Where do you come from? Do you know? 
Do you know anything about your own tradition? If you're Irish, you better know who St. Patrick is, and you better know a little bit more about St. Patrick than beer. And on and on it goes. You get to know who, where you're coming from. It's very important. You don't want to be getting to the gates of heaven and meeting one of these saints who played a very important role in your life, and you go, excuse me, but I don't know who you are. That's going to be a very sad moment. You don't want to be there. All right. Now, this chapter is divided into seven units, and it's reasonable to assume that the information contained was originally derived from Edomite literary uh, traditions or archival material. Another important point to make. Um, there are a, a times when you speak with Protestants, they will say, the only thing I need is Scripture. All I believe in is Scripture. I don't believe in anything else but Scripture. This is a very diff- tough challenge for them because I w- I'll show you points where, in, as we go through, where we, we have no clue why what's said is being said. We don't know. In fact, we don't know what is being said. Not, not, not only what it means, but the, we are not certain of the true meaning behind the words that are read to you in some cases. All right? The other important point is that here is Scripture quoting from non-inspired sources. This text is quoting from Edomite sources, which are obviously non-inspired. Well, if Scripture can quote from non-inspired sources, it must be on the basis of something else. By this I mean, how did they know that this source is reliable? How did they know that this source source is speaking the truth and it's not causing a lie to enter Scripture? Well, obviously, the Bible can't tell you that. The Bible does not have an index of all the books that say the truth and which part of them say the truth. They must have relied on something else. And that something else is tradition. Now, you might think this is a... uh, sort of a very remote example I'm giving you. There is another one which is very important, and that is the letter of St. Jude. The letter of St. Jude, in a new, in a, which is part of the New Testament, obviously. And in this letter, St. Jude happens to tell us that St. Michael the Archangel and the devil contended over the body of Moses. And you can tonight go back home and open up the New Testament. Go to the letter of St. Jude. It's very short. It's about maybe two pages and a half. Very, very short. And you read this passage where he says, the devil and St. Michael the Archangel contended over the body of of Moses. Well, go back and look in Exodus where Moses died. There's no mention made of St. Michael or the devil contending over the body of Moses. Where does he get that from? Well, he gets that from a very known book, at least it was known back then, called the Book of Enoch. How many of you remember Enoch? Oh, good. There's at least three or four of you. Remember Enoch? Enoch, before the flood? Yes, the one who was taken up? Yeah. So back then, there was a book called the Book of Enoch, supposedly speaking in the name of Enoch about a certain events, etc. And it was regarded with very high regard by the Jewish community. But it was never considered inspired, neither by the Jews nor by the Christians. And yet, St. Jude quotes from it. That's his source. How does he know to quote this part 
and incorporate this into scripture. Tradition. There must have been something else supporting his claim to be able to quote from a non-recognized, non-authoritative book. Okay? All right, so the very first difficulty we face when we look at this genealogy is the fact that there are one, two, three, four, five names listed concerning the wives of Esau. So, yeah, as I said, there are five names listed. Ada, daughter of Elon the Hittite, Oholibama, daughter of Anna, daughter of Zibion the, Hittite, the Hivite, Basemat, daughter of Ishmael, sister of uh, Nebaioth, and Mabalath, daughter of Ishmael. And uh, there is no easy way of reconciling these names. Uh, so some commentators will tell you that Esau had five wives, some will say six, some will say three, and I will try and reconcile the three with the five. Uh, that's the position I'm taking for a very simple reason. When you look at the whole genealogy, neither Mabalath nor Judith have any children to their names. And if they were barren, uh, chances are it would have been in indicated by Scripture. But because they aren't, I suspect that they're really reflecting names already in existence. Particularly Mabalath and Basimat. Now Basimat is a name that is still used, believe it or not, but it's still in use today. Because it means, it's, the way we would be said today would be Basma, which means a smile. Right? Back then, Basimat would mean a treasure. Right? Mabalath is actually a word that means bitterness. So the suspicion here is that because she's the daughter of Ishmael, Mabalath may be the Hebrew name given to her. Because if you remember, Esau, when he knew that the wives of the Canaanite were bitter to his parents, he went and married the daughter of Ishmael. So the fact that bitterness is associated with her might come from a Hebrew source, because they were bitter. Whereas the Basimat piece may be an Edomite source. So presumably it's the same person given two different epithets, whether you're looking at it from the Edomite side or the Hebrew side. It is speculation, but I think it, it fits better than thinking that he actually married two, two, the two daughters of, of, uh, of Ishmael, when there is no indication that uh, they actually they were there. And Judith, well, she's the daughter of Barry the Hittite. There is no mention of Barry anywhere else. So, Chances are she may be Ada, or she may be Oholibama, and we don't know. So it's really hard to trace the actual relationship between these names. I'll leave it at that. Now, if we, can, if we concentrate on Ada, Oholibama, and Basima, you notice that um, the first to be named is Eliphaz, and Eliphaz is the most important place name in Edom and sometimes designates the whole country. So a synonym to Edom is Eliphaz. So sometimes in scripture you might find Edom, sometimes it's called Eliphaz. It is Edom, which, is, uh, which goes back to uh, Esau. So Esau, Edom, Eliphaz end up being the same thing. Right? And that's why oftentimes in scripture, when you don't have these references, 
you don't understand who they're making. When I say, if they said Eliphaz, you got no clue what Eliphaz is. You think it's just a guy down the street, and you know, it's just like a normal guy. No, it's actually a whole country, and it's a country with whom Israel has been locked into bitter um, uh, fight for a long time. And then you see that he's got these kids: Teman, Omar, Zifo, Korah, Galam, Kenaz, and Amalek. Now, Amalek, as you can see, is Amalek by Timnah, who is the concubine of Eliphaz. She's not a wife. She's a concubine. And she's the daughter of Seir. Why is that mentioned? Why is that important? Here's why. The Amalekite being the descendants of Eliphaz, the son of Esau, but from Timnah, the concubine, are not full-blooded Edomites. Yeah? Why is that important? Because in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 8 and 9, the Israelites are forbidden to abhor an Edomite. They are not allowed to abhor an Edomite. Because he is a kinsman of Israel. His progeny, his children, down to the third generation may be admitted to the fellowship of Israel. Not so the Amalekites. They are to be punished for the treacherous, unprovoked aggression against Israel in Exodus 17, 8, 16. I'm not going to go through the details right now. But um, for those of you who are from the Middle East, you know that when you meet somebody, you don't say, what do you do? You say, where are you from? Well, that's why. That's why the way you're from. Kins... Um, kinsman relationship are very important for the people of the Middle East because they indicate certain boundaries. So if you meet somebody and you ask, where are you from? And he says, I'm an Edomite. Right? That means you can have relationship with him. Not if he's an Amalekite. Then you don't. Then you're in trouble. Okay? So scripture is highly contextual. The context is very important for understanding the text. Scripture is not something you can just take out, completely ignore all these relationships, and hope to understand the literal meaning. And if you don't understand the literal meaning, you don't understand the spiritual meaning. You can get it to go anywhere. Yeah? It's sort of like you go into a family reunion and you're a new guy. Right? It's the family, family of your wife. And there's about 600 people there. And you get there and people are treating you like they're... You're, like you're their cousin. They don't know who you are. You don't know who they are. And here you are, and everybody's you know, chatting and talking. Everybody's happy. And suddenly you see one guy take a little plastic glass of lemonade and give it to another guy, and everybody stops talking. There's complete silence. One says to you, did you see that? Joe gave a glass of lemonade to Harry. Right? What are you missing is the entire context behind the gesture, right? You, you don't understand maybe why is that so important because there may be so, there's this whole family feud behind it and now it's getting reconciled by this gesture, right? Who knows what happened before? And sometimes we're like that with scripture. Right? We, something, you know, the text says something, we've got no clue who the people are, we just keep on reading. So therefore we consider what we don't know as not important. So it reminds me of um, this guy who's having issues with his uh, fiancée they were not yet married. And he went to see his friend and said, look, I'm having some issues with my fiancé. Uh, I, I, what do you think? I mean, how do we resolve these issues? And the answer to the guy was, uh, when you have problem with women, 
uh, wait, and I'll go away. Needless to say, this guy was not married. Um, and sometimes with Scripture, we think, oh, well, just ignore it, and the problem just go away. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't. Because some of those relationships have no impact whatsoever on us today. Like, for instance, the whole listing of all the, the sons of Edom may not have an immediate impact on us. But the Amalekite has an impact on our appreciation of Scripture in certain passages. So that's why we need at least to take a little look at this before we can just move on. Now, let me tell you some of the difficulties we have with the text. All right? And there are many. The first one is where it says in verse 6 that Edom, Esau, took his you know, his whole tribe, and went over to Seir. That presents a difficulty. What is the difficulty? This one is not too difficult to pinpoint. I mean, the difficulty is difficult to understand, but it's easy to pinpoint. It comes from the previous chapter, actually two chapters away, when um, Esau came and met Jacob with his company of 400 men. At the end of the chapter, where does Esau go back to? Seir. He goes back to Seir. Right? And then what does Jacob do? He says, I'll come and see you. What does he do? Seir is southeast. He goes north to Shechem. Right? But Esau is already in Seir. And we're told now that he's going to Seir. Do you understand the difficulty? The reason I'm mentioning this to you you need to be aware of it. There are, um, in, in Europe most especially, it hasn't been, it's not big yet here, but I, I suspect it will become big at one point. In Europe, there are Christians who are becoming Muslim. And what the Muslim apologists are doing is actually using these texts and showcasing all the difficulties in Scripture as proof that there are contradictions in Scripture as the Quran says. So we can't just ignore these things. That there, there are intrinsic difficulties present in the text. This is one of them. What we're missing is the context to understand what happened and why he's saying that. Okay? Maybe one explanation, possible, that Esau had an outpost in Seir. But he hadn't yet moved everybody up to Seir. He still had most of his people living in Canaan, and had an outpost in Seir, maybe a summer house or something. Right? Maybe he was investigating the land, who knows? We don't know the full story. And then now, in this chapter, he makes a decision that the land is not going to support both of them, and he knows he can move everybody up to Seir, so he does. Right? But on the face of it, it's, it, it seems that there is an error in Scripture. And yet one of our dogma is Scripture is inerrant. There are no errors in Scripture, whether small or large. None. I just quoted to you one simple problem, and I, you, some of you who have been here before will recall that I told you there is a huge, huge seeming contradiction in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels. It's big. And that is a contradiction between the Gospel of St. John and, uh, and the um, Synoptic, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what is the contradiction? It, it, it concerns something very important to us, Passover. 
Did Jesus celebrate Passover? According to the synoptics, he did. But not according to, to the Gospel of St. John. He died before the Passover. He didn't celebrate it. And this one in particular is used by Muslim apologists to point out that the central tenet of our faith seems to be contradictory in the, in the scriptures. How could you say, how do you believe this when three of the Gospels say one thing and the, the, the fourth one says something different? So, so the notion that all I need is scripture is completely untenable unless your understanding of scripture is very superficial. You need the church, you need tradition to be able to support and complement and give full meaning to scripture. Right? So you need three things actually. You need scripture, you need tradition, and what is the third thing that is absolutely indispensable? The glue that makes the two work together. The magisterium. The magisterium of the church. Who is alone, who alone can give us the true interpretation of scripture. You need the three to work. And that's why we need the church. Right? That's why you need the church. If you're wondering what is the answer to this, there, I have a series on my website you can go to called The Four Senses of Scripture, which I recommend you listen to. And I go through a number of those contradictions. Not a lot of them, but some. And I provide some of the answers. Okay. And the website is corbono.com. Q-O-R-B-O-N-O.com. So that's one of the difficulties we talked about. The other one, which is also very interesting, is this business of hot springs. I mentioned to you, right? Okay. So the actual word in Hebrew for this hot springs, bayimim, is unique in Scripture, and it is of unknown meaning. So Hebrew scholars don't know what Bayamim mean today. We've lost the meaning. I am uh, looking at verse uh, 24. Verse 24. We don't know what it means in the original. All right. The present rendering that I read to you, Hot Springs. How many of you actually in your Bible read Hot Springs? Anyone read something different? Yes? Water in the desert. Water in the desert. Same thing. Anyone has mules instead of hot springs? No? Therefore, none of you have a scripture based on a Jewish tradition. All of you have a scripture based... So all of you have a version that is really dependent on the Vulgate, which is a translation from the Hebrew into Latin by St. Jerome. Hmm? So even today, the Protestant Bible will follow the Vulgate. Even... Some of the commentary I'm reading on the Hebrew side is following St. Jerome and use hot springs. But the problem is, there is no philological support for hot springs. If you understand Hebrew and you follow the philology of the words, there is no relationship between Bayamim that we know of and hot springs. In fact, St. Jerome, who rendered it as aqua calidas, warm springs or hot baths, Say, he says, there are as many opinions concerning it as there are commentators. He was aware of that difficulty. This is not something new. We didn't discover this today. St. Jerome back then knew about this difficulty, and he knew we don't have any proper interpretation to this. Now, the most ancient and widespread 
Jewish interpretation is not hot springs, but mules. And this rests on nothing more than a similarity of, I'm sorry, it's not uh, Bayamim, it's a Hayamim. My bad. There's some similarity between Hayamim to Greek, Hemionos, which means mule. So because there is a sort of a linguistic similarity between two words in two different languages, Hebrew and Greek, they decided to use mule. That's in scripture. Mule, hot springs. We don't know. Yes. And that's why, precisely, the grazing of the donkeys, right? That's why some of the Jewish translation suggests a mule. Because what is a mule? It's a crossing between what and what? A horse and a donkey. Okay, that's how you get mules. It's a crossing between horses and donkeys. So he was grazing donkeys. So maybe this is how the idea came to him. And in fact, among the Jews, the tradition is that he's the father of the mule. So here you have a whole tradition going down this way, and we don't share it at all because we talk about hot springs. But we don't know. We don't know. We're not done. The kings. Let's talk about Edomite kings, 31 through 39. So the list is not a genealogy. It details eight kings who reigned in Edom prior to the establishment of the monarchy in Israel. And as one commentator says, this register bristles with difficulties. Which are discussed which are discussed a little bit here. The reason why they say before any king reigned over the Israelites is because the first king to reign over the Israelites is Saul. And that is important because when Saul became king, according to first Samuel fourteen forty seven, he waged a war against the Edomites. And then David, who came right after him, reduced them to Vesseldom, all but wiped out the royal house and placed Israelite garrisons and governors in a land as narrated in 2 Samuel 8, 2, 13, and 14, and in 1 Kings 11, 14 through 17. So it's important to indicate that these kings reigned before Saul and David, because when Saul became a king and David became a king, they stopped the royal line of Edom, as was prophesied to Rebekah, about the two. The, the, the older shall serve the younger. right? So the older will be a servant of the younger. And it came to pass when Saul became a king. Now verse 32. Dinaba, Dinababa, I'm sorry, the site has not been located and it's unclear whether it's in Bella's royal residence or his family seat. So verse 32, just to be on, a, to, to, for everybody to be on the same page. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of a city being Dinahaba. I'm sorry, Dinahaba. And Dinahaba, we don't know where that is, and we don't know what it represents. Verse 33, uh, which is, Bela, Bela died, and Joab, the son of Zerah of Bozrah, reigned in his stead. Now, the Greek translation of the book of Job carries an addendum identifying that personality with this Joab, a tradition known to but rejected by Ibn Ezra, who was a great Jewish commentator. So there's this notion that this was the, the Job that we speak of in the book of Job. But there is not necessarily... Um, there, there is, we don't have anything else but this tenuous link between the two books to say that this is true. 
Now, Bozra was a city of such major importance that it's sometimes equated with Edom. So, you have Esau, Edom, Eliphaz, and Bozra, all meaning the same thing, all indicating the same place. It is identified with modern Busaira, some 35, um, some about 20 miles south, south, southeast of the Dead Sea, and 35 miles north of Petra. And excavations have revealed a well-fortified town covering nearly 20 acres that flourished in the 8th century BC. Avith, in verse 50, uh, 35, is unknown. We don't know what that is. I don't know what, 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 it, what it refers to. And in verse 37, really, it's Rehoboth on the river. Usually, when they say the river, when they say Rehoboth on the river, the river is the Euphrates. All right? But this is very far from Edom. So what does it really refer to? Well, we don't know. So that's why in some of the scripture you will find the Euphrates being explicitly stated, even though it makes absolutely no sense. So the eighth Edomite king could have been a contemporary of King Saul. <clears throat> the usual note that he died is omitted here. So all the other ones died, but the eighth one was, did not die. And presumably because he was taken prisoner. So by the time of David, Saul's successor dynastic kingship existed in Edom. And this emerges in the story in 1 Kings 11, 14 to 22. According to which, Hadad of the royal house is heir presumptive to the throne. He may have been the grandson of the eighth king listed here. As far as Po is concerned, it's an unknown place. And the fact that he listed the, um, the name the fact that his father is not listed in verse 39, but the mother and the grandmother are, indicate presumably a very distinguished ancestry on her side, not on his. So, what do we make out of this chapter? What can we say? Well, the first thing is that we are obviously lacking context. This is ancient text, and the overall context is something we have lost. The second is that on a literal basis, we know that this genealogy was to showcase that the prophecy made to Rebekah and the prophecy that Isaac made to his son came true. Which is important for us to understand whatever is being stated in Scripture does come through. The third thing we need to realize is that there are difficulties which are due to our lack of knowledge of the context in which the text was written not because there are errors in Scripture. Right? And the fourth thing that is very important to realize because of this is that when we, as Christians, cease to have a Christian culture, then our understanding of Scripture and our understanding of the, of the teachings of the church is threatened. A thousand years from now, it may be just as difficult for Christians of that era to make sense of encyclical documents written today because a thousand years have gone by and the traditions have not been kept. It does not mean that when the encyclical were penned, there were errors in them. Therefore, ignorance of the context is no justification for us to say that there are errors in Scripture. And the other thing that I pointed out to you, which is important, is for us to realize the importance of where we come from and who we're going with. And to understand a little bit more 
the communion of the saints. We believe in the communion of the saints. That's part of our creed. We have saints who are our friends, our brothers and sisters. We, within our families, hopefully there are saints in heaven today interceding for us. And we are here today because of their intercession. So we would do well to get acquainted a little bit more with who they are and better understand um, what role they play in our lives. When something important happens to you, when an important event happens to you, it is a good idea to go to the calendar and check and see whose feast day it is. And to honor that saint on that feast day, you never know that he or she did not explicitly pray for you so that what you were asking for happened on that day, even though you were not aware of it. Okay? Those are, I think, important considerations we can derive from this chapter, even though they're not in it. And next week, we're going to begin the final cycle, the cycle of Joseph. That'll take us all the way to the end of Scripture. The week after is obviously Holy Week, and there is no Bible study here, because there is a liturgy that starts on Monday. And we will then um, resume our study the first week of Easter. Uh, let's um, um, close with a word of prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll take questions. Yes, go ahead. Good question. Which calendar do you follow for the, for the Feast Day of uh, Saints? You, you follow the liturgical calendar. So within the Maronite Church, there is one. You just follow this one. In the Latin Rite, there is a calendar. You follow that one. That's what you do. Yes, Fanny. There's the Horite and the Hevite. I'm just making sure you're asking for the Horite. The Hevite, are, they're very little known about them. We don't know very much about them. The, the Horites are uh, obviously in Seir. We think the Hevites were towards Sidon, up north, which is very strange. Again, it's one of those difficulties. I don't want to get too much into this. But as far as the Horite are, who are Seir, they're pagans. Yeah. Question? Yes. So there's a couple of questions. The first one is, um, what would you tell them to read? It, I think it will depend on the context of every person. There is not going to be a general answer. The general answer I gave you is the Gospel of St. Luke. Right? If you're talking to someone who's Jewish, you may wish to consider indicating to them that there is a... a sort of a Jewish, um, I'm not going to say translation, but there is a Jewish rendering of the Gospels. So render like a Haggadah, render in a way Jews are used to read. They may want to consider that. Uh, it's an interesting read. But beyond that, you, generally speaking, the reason why the Jews overall have not converted is a mystery. As St. Paul tells us, the reason why they haven't converted is for us Gentile. And when the number of the Gentiles is complete, then the Jews will convert. And one of the signs that the end of the world is at hand is when the Jews convert. Right? More personally, why they didn't uh, is a, a general question you can ask today. Why is it that some people believe and others don't? I don't think it is peculiar to the Jews. It's to anyone. And what you should do, first and foremost, when you're talking to someone who is a non-Christian, is to always remember what St. Francis used to tell his, um, his brothers, he would tell them, preach all the time, and whenever necessary, use words. And by that, he meant, preach with your lifestyle. Uh, it is the case that many, many famous converts 
always indicated, almost unanimously indicated, that one key factor in our conversion was a good, wholesome Catholic family that impressed upon them the love of Christ, and that was very significant in their conversion. So by you living up a Christian life, you are preaching. Right? So that's important. The other thing you need to keep in mind is the reason why many people do not convert to Catholicism has nothing to do with theology, or has less to do with theology. It has a lot to do with morality. Catholicism says there is no divorce. Catholicism says contraception is a mortal sin. Therefore, anyone who uses these things is not living according to God's will. And that's hard on a lot of people. So you need to understand the context of every person. Being a friend of them, meaning having good relations, is a very good thing. So therefore, it's not worth losing a friend over an argument. So don't win an argument at the risk of losing a friend. Yet at the same time, do not, um, do not give them a, um, a washed-down version of the truth. Right? That means you need to know what the truth is. Hence, your own understanding of the, of the faith can go a long way to help them come into the faith. Yeah? So, pray, obviously, to, for this person, and then ask, ask God, ask your guardian angel, if you're the right person to speak to them, and in that case, wait for the right context, so you can actually tell them something they can hear and accept. I'm not saying you cannot bring them to church. In some cases, it might work. It is important to know if that's the right thing to do. At the end of the day, you and I cannot convert anybody. In fact, we can't even convert ourselves. Right? It's always the working of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you need to be attuned to what the Holy Spirit wants from you. And my, in some cases, that might be the right thing to do. In others, it may not be. There is no you know, cookie-cutter formula of how somebody comes to know Christ. Yeah? Yes? Oh, very good. Thank you for mentioning it. Ignatius is another one. The reason why I didn't mention it is simply because I've been mentioning the Navarre Bible for so long. And Ignatius wasn't yet to the same level. Scott Hahn, um, he's, he's very much involved into it. In, they haven't yet gotten to the same level. It's very good. So this is not a good source you have. The Ignatius study right, on Scripture is also a very good one. If, for whatever reason, the Navarre is not appealing to you. Or if you want to have variety, which is great, Ignatius is definitely a good one. Thank you very much for mentioning it. Yes. Yes, it's when David actually conquered them. The kingdom of the Edomites uh, was done with. But as a people, they continued to exist. As I said, Herod himself was an Edomite. Just there were conquered people, just as the Jews were conquered under the Romans. Correct. After the conquest of Edom, Edom was never considered part of Israel, although they could be brought into Israel should they decide to do so down to the third generation, because they were kinsmen. Uh, it may have happened on a personal basis. This was something stated, so in case you meet an individual who is an Edomite and wants to join you, he can be. Yes. In, in Scripture, uh, we have to be aware that there are these different uh, uh, meaning to these words of being a Jew, an Israelite, and a Hebrew. Uh, think of them as concentric circles. The largest one is Hebrew, because really they go back to Eber, who is the sixth uh, great-grandfather of Abraham. So the descendants of Eber are the Hebrews. In that larger context, the Arabs are Hebrews. Well, yeah, because they all go back to Eber, because the Arabs go to Ishmael, 
and Ishmael and to Abraham and all the way up to, to Eber, right? It's a family feud. They're brothers. The Israelites are the descendants of Israel, Jacob, right? Any one of the 12 tribes would be considered an Israelite. The Jews are the descendant of Judah, the third son of, of, uh, of uh, Jacob, along with Benjamin. Because once they go to the promised land, the land of Benjamin is really smack next to the land of Judah, and Jerusalem is in the land of Benjamin. And Judah would have never let, let go of Jerusalem. Therefore, the Benjaminites and the, the descendant of Judah are Jews. No. As I said earlier, the Edomites, when they were conquered, were conquered. Just as when Rome conquered Israel or, or uh, Palestine at the time, the Jews did not become Roman. They were still Jews. When David conquered Edom, they remained Edomite, but they did not have their own king anymore. That's the difference. He broke the political structure and made them vassals of Israel. But he, they, did not be, they were not uh, absorbed, and they did not become uh, Jews. They were still Edomites, as, for instance, is the case when Herod, a thousand years later, was ruling over the Jews, and he is an Edomite. Yeah? Yes. Do the Edomite exist today? Descendants of the Edomite presumably exist, but in what form, I won't be able to tell you. Yeah. Essentially, when Islam happened, right, they absorbed a lot of that under one heading. But who, are, who they are and what they're doing today... I have not looked into it, honestly. I, so I, therefore, I cannot tell you if they still exist as a people or not, but there is no such thing as a country of Edom or the kingdom of Edom. It doesn't exist. Yes, buddy. Very good question. How does it, how does it happen that, that Herod was the king, even though he is an Edomite? Right? But, right? How do we account for this? Remember, there are... Well, yeah, he's a half Edomite. To be, but he, no, he's Edomite, and he's something... His mother is not. His father is. But... The immediate answer is that Herod was a friend of the Romans. Of course, he's appointed. Yeah, yeah, of course, he was appointed by the Romans. But the more important question, though, behind this one is, how is it, and when we see the, the prophecy of, uh, the prophecy made to, 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 uh, to Judah, when, when Jacob says, Judah is a lion's whelp, and the scepter belongs to Judah, and shall not depart from him until... Uh, until it goes to the one to whom it belongs, which is obviously indicating Christ. But to the Jews, it means to David, because David was the first king of the line of Judah. Well, if that's the case, how did the Jewish kingdom disappear? Why is it, yeah, but, but, but why is it that God allowed it to disappear? And even today, Israel is not a kingdom. That's why many Jews living in the United States who, are of, who understand Scripture fairly well reject Israel. Because Israel is not a kingdom. And it must be a kingdom. It has to have a king. Otherwise, the prophecy is not fulfilled. Therefore, this is not the real thing. It's fake. And obviously, they're effectively labeled as radicals, which in one way they may be. I don't know. I'm not getting into politics here. But I'm just indicating... That this contradiction is still lived by the, by the well-educated Jews or Israelites in the faith. By the way, you notice it's Israel, not, not the kingdom of Judea. They didn't call it Judea, they called it Israel. 
Because their intent is to regroup all 10 tribes, right? All the 12 tribes. Hmm? Yes, yeah, some do refer to it this way. Yeah, yeah, but not not the non uh, the non practicing will not necessarily use those terms because they don't understand. The other ones they do. Yeah, yeah, they do. But uh, it, there are many contradictions that are, cannot be resolved if you take away Christ out of the equation. No, Herod made complete sense because he signaled the passage away from the Old Testament into the New. Right? And the church. That's why you take out the church, a lot of things don't make any sense. Because right? the continuation went through Christ, and then Christ said, I rule forever. There is no more king after Christ. There is only Christ. Christ, by the way, is not the president, and he's not the prime minister. He's the king. He's the David. Yeah. He's the king. And then he has, here on earth, his first deputy. Peter, the Pope, right? And so you can see how it makes complete sense. The passing away of the old brings in the new, and what is the new? It is the confirmation of the old. It is not the rejection of the old. In the old, you went from Adam and Eve being a couple, then you grew it with Noah to a family, right? If you think of the covenants, Noah grew it as a family, then you go to Jacob, and you have a tribe. Right? Then you go to Moses, and you have a nation. And with David, you have a kingdom. But it's a kingdom that is prescribed by ethnicity. And then finally, you get to the kingship of Jesus Christ, the Catholic Church, which is the universal kingdom. Right? And that's it. This is it. We're not going to go any further than that. Right? Although there are, there are two theologians that were appointed in the Vatican to study the possibility of inclusions of aliens into the church. You think it's funny, but it isn't. This is serious. I mean, why would, should we believe we're the only ones on, on the, in, in, in this universe? There are so many planets out there. What if one day we do meet some aliens? Are they, can they be baptized? No, not of course. Not that obvious. No? Not at all. We're back to square one. Christ gave the church authority over what? Go forth and baptize the nations. He didn't say, go forth and baptize the universe. Why? Because what saves us? As what? What is Jesus? True God and? True man. The humanity of Jesus cannot be taken away. What saves us is we have the same, we share the same nature with Jesus Christ. Bingo. Can we extend that to them? It's not an easy question to answer, actually. It's very tricky. Right? And we can't simply say, well, there's nobody out there. We, we cannot say that. <laughs> no. That's simple because we don't know. But there are so many planets out there. Why would God, who loves diversity, look at the species He created on this planet alone. Look at how many He created here. Why should we restrict God to creating only one species beyond the angels that can, obviously the angels are aliens, by the way, so there is a proof that aliens exist. Right? They're aliens. I mean, they're more aliens than an alien you'll ever meet. I'm not joking. Angels are aliens. They're not human, are they? 
They don't have a body, they're a spirit. I mean, you, I mean, you can be more alien than that. At least an alien from another planet shares something with us. We can see them, touch them, talk to them, and that's stuff. Try that with an angel. Right? Why would we put it past God to create another race? Right? But the key, and, in the, uh, <laughs> and you can understand how controversy can spring, the key to this whole thing is this. Jesus, God, could find a different way of saving them. Right? Maybe these people who created over there some other planet never fell. Their Adam and Eve never fell. Maybe. Maybe they were the only ones who did. Who knows? Right? But here's the key. This is where it really gets tricky. There is a title we give to Mary, and we recite it without much thinking about it. What is it? One of the titles of Our Lady. Yeah. Do you see the implications? Mary is queen of the universe. It means that whoever is living out there in the universe, she's their queen. That is huge. That is huge. Yes. Yes, there is. You're talking, yeah, the cherubim, not necessarily the cherubim, but there are angels who are put in charge of the universe. But you need to understand that the way they work is very alien to us. It isn't like we, you know, sometimes we, th- we know that the planets and the order of the stars is, is sort of moved by angels. And somehow we imagine angels running behind a planet and kicking it every so often just to keep it on course. But they don't, they're not, they're not, they don't have any, Material composition to them, they're pure spirits. So, how is it to, how can we say that an angel is in a certain place? Like Gabriel came to earth. What does that mean for Gabriel to come to earth? He is a spirit. There is no location to a spirit. Yeah? So, you see how our language is poor to express an angel came to earth. The best way to understand it is when you think of Paris. You're here. You think of Paris, right? Let's say the Eiffel Tower. Our thought process is so weak that it's not real. The mere fact of me thinking of Paris doesn't bring me to Paris, does it now? But it is for angels. The mere fact of thinking of a location make it so that the angel is in, or rather the location is in the angel just as the thought of Paris is in my head right now. The, lo- the physical location is in the angel. Talk about alien. But we don't understand that at all. Right? So anyhow, why did I talk about all of this? Yeah, we talked about this because of the... Um, we talked about, yeah, the Edomite, and the fact, okay, how come that the kingdom stopped? Well, this is why, because of the church. Once the kingship came to Jesus Christ, Jesus, as the uh, Lord and God, was free to establish it anywhere he wanted. He was not bound to Jerusalem anymore. That's what they don't understand. right? He was not bound to the land anymore. He was the king of the entire earth. And what did he do? He transferred his kingdom where? He transferred his kingdom. He made his throne where the throne of Satan was. 
going back to the book of Revelation, where was the throne of Satan? Rome. The worst of all the kingdoms. Rome. That's why Peter had to die in Rome. The foundation of the church is there. That's why. But you need to understand the covenant, the blessings and the curses, and, the, uh, and all of this to kind of put it all together, right? So that's, that's how it is. This is who we are. Yes. Well, yes, what happens is that the Holy Spirit is always with us, right? What moves us is the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit stopped being with us for an instant, we'd all fall back to dust. There'd be nothing left of us. Right? So the Holy Spirit is what gives life to us all the time. He sustains us. But during the transubstantiation, okay, in the, in the Maronite liturgy, if you notice, the epiclesis, the coming down of the Holy Spirit, happens after the, um, the um, consecration words. In the Latin rite, it happens before. It's very short in the Latin rite. You have to really be paying attention to notice it. But in the Novus Ordo, it's very short. But it happens. Now, the whole reason why it's listed this way, in, in our case, we sort of go with the, we're following the liturgical order. First, um, uh, um, first the, um, the Paschal sacrifice of Christ, and then comes Pentecost, the coming down of the Holy Spirit. What we're trying to indicate is that the, the consecration is the action of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it occurs all at the same moment. So, when the priest says the word of consecration, the Holy Spirit has come down. But we cannot do it all in one moment. So, we do it sequentially. Right? But it all happens in one instant. The best way to think about it is, is the way I, um, the ancient Latin rite would put it. Where it would say, please take these, our sacrifice. May your holy angel take this, our sacrifice, to your holy altar in heaven. And then, may it bring back from it the sacred species. So essentially, there's this conduit that is open where what we offer here, bread and wine, is transferred up to heaven and with our as a sacrifice from us. And what we receive back from heaven under the form, under the species of bread and wine, under the form of bread and wine, I'm sorry, is actually the true sacrifice. Right? In which obviously the Holy Spirit is, is, is working. Why? Because St. Paul says, when, when we are in the Spirit, what he means by being in the Spirit or being in the cloud is precisely being in this in the presence of God, especially the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are neither on earth nor in heaven, but in some sort of an intermediate state, which we call grace, which we call the Catholic Church, which is heaven on earth. And this happens right at that moment. Yeah? So when the priest makes this invocation, heaven and earth touch. Literally, truly, heaven and earth are touching in a way we don't understand and are an indication of what is to come. Have I answered your question? Yeah? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.